Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line by embracing behavioral economics. And now, here are your hosts, world-renowned thought leader on customer experience, Colin Shaw, and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. If I get something for free, that's evidence to me as a customer, as a consumer, that I don't care about it very much. Because right? if, if I'd liked it, I would have paid for it. It's going to be less damaging to the brand for people to go through this effort of having to redeem something versus it, them getting it free at the point of purchase. It's evidence that I must really like this brand if I'm willing to go through this hassle in order to get the rebate. Self-perception doesn't necessarily mean to say it's fact, because the key word is perception. Okay, Colin, so story time. Early in my career, I was invited to give a talk at Yale for a small conference, and it was a very big deal for me. I was very excited about it. Right. And they gave all of the presenters a trophy, kind of an award to go say that you'd presented at this conference. Wow. I was very excited about it. It was this Lucite pyramid thing. It kind of looked like a weapon. I'm a little bit surprised I got it through <laughs> airport security. It's amazing what you can get through there nowadays. <laughs> well, it had Yale's logo on it, so I assume they figured I was okay. Believe it or not, I once took a cannonball on a flight with me. <laughs> well, to be fair, that seems like less of a weapon by itself. You know, yeah. pair it with something else yeah. and you can do some damage. I'm going to need the story, though, about why you decided to collect cannonballs. Maybe not now. <laughs> Maybe we'll save that for a later episode. Yeah. That sounds like a story. So the reason I brought this up, I was very excited about my award that I was going to take. I had a friend who was presenting at the same conference, and she is one of the most accomplished people in our field. She just she publishes like crazy. She's been invited all over the world to give talks. She was a little bit more senior in, in the career than I was. And as we were sitting in the lobby of the hotel waiting to drive out to the airport, she said, you know, I don't want this thing cluttering up my bag. I got no use for it. Do you want mine too? And I was <laughs> I was so shocked. I was like, this is, you know, one of my newly prized possessions that I had this thing. And now you've got a backup. Yeah, and I've, exactly. <laughs> I, I could actually wield this thing two-handed, you know, two different weapons if it came to it. And part of the reason was she didn't need this external validation right. of her success in the career in the same way that I did, being kind of sure. a, a newly minted professor. And this is an instance of what, what's called in psychology symbolic self-completion, right. which is part of a larger phenomenon that we'll talk about today. So symbolic self-completion is the idea that if we're feeling insecure about something, we can surround ourselves with evidence okay. that, no, no, we are in fact good on that. So if I'm feeling a little insecure in my career and career accomplishments, then something like an award that I can put on my Sure. Shelf becomes very important to me because that's external evidence that offsets my internal sense of unease. So let me give you an example of that. By the sounds of it, it um, this would be the case. I get surprised sometimes by how people put at the end of their 
name, they put X, Y, Z, B, C, D, yes. you know, J. And I think myself, my goodness. And some of them look like go on for half an hour. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I think, really? Yeah. Really? Do I really need to know all of that? You know, and w- what's this actually about? And it's obviously about stating that this person has got to a certain degree or a certain level or whatever. But having said that, just to also be clear, you know, I do say, yeah, I've been recognized by LinkedIn as one of the top 150 business influencers, and I'm proud of that. Yep. So it's the same thing. It's just not 27 million letters at the end of it. Well, I mean, we don't want to paint with too broad a brush here, right? So there are various reasons for why somebody could, you know, display an award or a diploma yeah. or have, you know, initials after their name. So we don't, we don't want to say that any instance of this is evidence of symbolic self-completion. Right. But on average, what you'll tend to find is people who are better established in an area or in an industry who kind of have more accomplishments that they can point back to in their own yeah. mind, they'll be on average less likely to do this. They, yes. Some of the researchers who studied this looked at freshmen at, and seniors at university. So it was done at the University of Texas, which if you've ever met any Longhorns, anybody from the University of Texas, you'll know this was a great school to run this study at. They're very, very proud of their universities. So. Right. And what they found was that they asked these students about how much university paraphernalia they own. So how many items do you own that have the University of Texas colors or the logo or the you know the name on it? And they found that on average, freshmen owned way more apparel and notebooks and peripheral than did seniors. Right. And their explanation was seniors felt more confident in that identity. Sure. They were almost graduating. They'd been there for several years. Whereas the freshmen were insecure in that identity. They were brand new. And so they wanted to surround themselves with this. Yes. No, I can personally relate to all of that. Yeah. Oh, so can I. Absolutely. Right. I mean, I think this is a very, very human thing to do. But it's part of just this larger problem, this larger, I don't want to call it a problem. I mean, this larger issue, this larger way of understanding people, which is self-perception. The idea that we look to ourselves and the things that surround us for evidence of who we are and what we like and what we do. And the reason this is so interesting to me personally as a phenomenon is it seems to run backwards to how we think things should operate. So it should be that we have preferences, we have things that we like, and then based on those preferences, we act on them. So there's this idea in economics about revealed preference. And the idea is that you can tell me up and down you know, how much you like or dislike something, but when push comes to shove, what is it that you actually do, right? You can insist that, you know, you you love Apple products and, and like tell me that this these are your things that you love the most, but when push comes to shove, do you actually put down the money to buy an Apple product or do you go with a cheaper product instead, right? So yeah. the idea behind revealed preferences is, you know, that preferences are driving our behavior and that's how we know what people really think, what they really want. And Self-perception. Uh, uh, oh, go ahead. I know that I, I was poking the bear by bringing up Apple as an example. <laughs> I was hoping I could skate And I would it, just but. like to assure you that not only do I say that I like Apple products, but I buy them religiously. You don't know, but Colin's currently got his sleeve rolled up so that he can flex <laughs> his bicep with his Apple tattoo on there. <laughs> absolutely. 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 
So I guess I was just trying to put a customer experience slant on this then. Yes. So the interesting bit is, do you understand your customers' preferences? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And your do you understand not just from what we were coming at it from, which would be the, you know, humanistic and therefore you understand customers' preferences and their preferences therefore alter their behavior. It's if I'm doing self-analysis of this, then do I understand that from a customer perspective? Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it goes even further than that, though. Do your customers themselves understand, understand their own preferences? And, right. and we don't want to go to extremes here. There are lots of instances where people do, in fact, understand their own preferences, and that's great. But there are other instances where we look to our own behavior to inform us about our preferences. So, for example, you may be neutral towards, you know, some particular snack. Yep. But the fact that it's always around your house and that you always, you know, will reach for it when it's there on the table and kind of available, that then can become evidence to yourself that you like it. Right? So this right. runs backwards. It's it's like you're observing your own behavior yeah. and go, "Oh, I must like this." I buy it a lot. So I I often think to myself, why am I doing this? Yeah. Yeah. Whether I'm unusual, (laughs) I don't, I I guess I'm not, but I think to myself, why am I doing this? What is it that's made me think this particular way? Or, you know, is it to do with frequency? Is it to do with, as you're saying, the snack is just lying there around a lot? Or, you know, what is it that I'm doing? But I guess it's partly what we're saying here is that the frequency of doing it also makes me go, hey, I'm doing that a lot, therefore I must like it. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, there's this counterintuitive principle that sometimes, you know, salespeople will will work in certain situations where if you make it a little bit harder for people to do something, then they'll end up kind of more committed to it and like it more, right? So there's instances where a company could give away a product for free, like just the economics of that makes sense. Yeah, But they'll make people pay for it anyway, because they know that if they do, there'll be greater commitment to it afterwards. Part of that is this self-perception idea, where if I get something for free, that's evidence to me as a customer, as a consumer, that I don't care about it very much. right? Because if I'd, if I'd liked it, I would have paid for it. Whereas if I do have to pay for it, if I have to extend some effort to get it, that's evidence that I must value it. So I've worked hard for it. I've actually put myself out a hell of a lot for getting this product or service or whatever. I mean, again, what we always tell our listeners is that there's never one thing happening yes. here. Yep. So, yep. you know, you can't just turn around and go, well, you know, the world's like this because of this one thing. But again, I was just reflecting back on Apple products where you get people sat outside the Apple store for 24 hours before a new product is launched to, you know, that's putting in quite a lot of effort, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's evidence to yourself that you must like Apple products a lot. Yeah, There's this self-perception explains some hazing rituals. So there are some organizations that in order to get into them, you need to kind of go through a lot of effort or humiliation or, or you know, expense. So, for example, 
a lot of fraternities and sororities will have these, you know, pledge weeks where people who want to join these societies on campus will have to, you know, dress up in embarrassing costumes and, and make a fool of themselves or, you know, act like servants to the people who are already members of the club. Just this really effortful, humiliating stuff. And the psychology of that, part of the reason that that happens is that because then once you're in the club, when you look back on that, it becomes evidence that you must really value this thing. Sure. Right? Look at what I had to endure in order to get here. It must be great if I was willing to do that in order to get into it. And we were talking before the show, some of this must be around the social proofing as well, i.e. in that example, I want to be part of this fraternity because all the cool kids are. Sure. I mean, like you were saying, there's rarely one thing that explains what's going on. I think a lot of times, you know, particularly with hazing rituals, there's other external evidence as well, right? So if other people are doing it, that's evidence that it's cool. If I'm doing it though, and I'm paying a high cost to do it, then that's evidence from my own behavior as well. Yeah. consistent with that. And I presume that self-perception doesn't necessarily mean I'm thinking about the fact that self-perception doesn't necessarily mean to say it's fact. It's just your, because right. the key word is perception. And you could alter your perception or your perception may be that you are part of some social economic group or whatever it may be. Very good. And therefore, actually, it's a false perception. It's not really fact. Oh, absolutely. Right. So self-perception also partially explains midlife crises. Right. Right. So if I'm, you know, I just am in my early 40s now, if I'm feeling like my youth has passed me and I'm no longer as young and virile as I, I once was, well, I could react to that by buying stuff that's evidence of a young, virile person. Right. So I could go out and get a sports car because that's something that a young person would drive, right? So we essentially play this shell game with ourselves where it's, I'm feeling insecure in some way. I go out and buy something that's evidence that I'm actually performing well on that domain. And then we just fool ourselves. And yeah. we think, oh, well, obviously an old sad person wouldn't own a sports car like this. Therefore, I must be young and virile. So yeah, it's we've changed our own perception blatantly by going out and seeking out evidence of the opposite. Yeah. So again, understanding where your customers are from this perspective becomes key because I guess if you're selling sports cars, Mm -hmm. then understanding if your customer's self-perception is that way, then that's going to be important to you. Yeah. It leads to a whole different set of selling opportunities, doesn't it? Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Hi, this is Colin Shaw. I'm really pleased to announce the launch of my seventh book, which I've called Happy Employees Make Happy Customers. The book is about the interconnection between happy employees and a great customer experience. I explain how you can go about building a great employee experience that drives a great customer experience. For my podcast listeners, I'm also pleased to provide you with a special offer of a third off the regular price. All you have to do is to go to beyondphilosophy.com backslash happy. That's beyondphilosophy.com backslash happy. And in the promotional code, simply type happy podcast. That's happy podcast. I really hope you enjoy the read. And is it done? So I find myself 
looking at some of the actions, and again, whether it's just because I'm I'm into this stuff or not, but looking at some of the virtually the subconscious actions that I do and thinking, why am I doing this? Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, so it can happen at a conscious or an unconscious level. Right. Right. So I, I think that a lot of times when this happens, we're not actively assessing is this what is driving my behavior in this case? And I'm using this as evidence. I think a lot of times it's this intuitive part of our brain that's just looking for ideas to pair up together and looking for evidence of you know feeling certain ways. And it's this an intuitive part of our brain that, that sees all this happen. But we absolutely can go through and analyze some of the stuff more consciously. And what type of things would come out of that then? Have you got any other examples of something that, you know, you spoke about hazing and stuff like that. Is there any other examples of that? Yes. Actually, there was a fascinating study that was run on coupons, which is not something you would think of as falling in this domain. This was published way back in the the late 1970s. But what they did is they looked at, very cleverly, in my opinion, they looked at how difficult it was to redeem a coupon. So you can think about, there are some coupons that are very easy to redeem. You know, the store might. Sure tape photocopies of the coupon to every box of cereal. So it's just automatically there, or you swipe your card and the coupon is automatically applied. There are other coupons that are very difficult to redeem. So sometimes you need to actually cut the coupon out of the cardboard box that it's come in. My favorite example is a Purdue chicken will sometimes have coupons in a little plastic sleeve that's packaged in with the raw chicken. All right. That you buy. So these are coupons that might give you salmonella and kill you, right? That's that's a <laughs> difficult, and they're slimy and gross. So what these researchers did is they looked at, okay, so when you're running a promotion for the promotion period, we're going to expect sales to go up, right? What they were interested in after they stopped running the promotion, what happened to sales? So did they kind of return back to their previous levels or did they drop off afterwards? Right. And so what they found is for the easy to redeem coupons, there was this bump in sales while the coupon was going on. And then afterwards, it dropped way down. Right. So it's kind of evidence that people may have been stockpiling, that we weren't like changing people's preferences. When the coupon was difficult to redeem, then sales went back to their initial levels very quickly. And the story was... If it's an easy to redeem coupon, it's evidence that you must not like that product very much, right? So Oreos is essentially having to buy me off with this coupon in order to pay. If it's a difficult to redeem coupon, that's evidence that you must like it a lot because now you're willing to risk, you know, raw chicken sliminess just to redeem that coupon. That is evidence that you must really like the product. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So it's this counterintuitive value of effort. We've talked about the importance of easy, and that's still true. But in terms of self-perception, a little bit of effort can actually improve things. So I, I was thinking of the example of cell phones, mobile phones, where you get a rebate. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, you the plan says, you know, come in, buy this product, and then, you know, 30 days later, mail in, and you get $50 off or whatever. Yep. And part of the business model is they know... I don't know if it's the majority, but they certainly know that a surprisingly large number. Yeah, a surprisingly large number of people won't do it. Yeah. And, you know, because of the effort involved in that. 
But I was then sort of questioning whether that would be the case, whether you don't like the product. It's just that you don't want the hassle of physically doing it. And I guess that if you're the company, you're making that not particularly easy because therefore people don't want to go through that process. Yeah, I mean, I think both are true, right? So the fact is that a surprisingly large number of people don't bother redeeming redeem rebates. Yeah. I can't remember the number either, but it's way higher than it should be. So that's just a benefit to the company. There's also this, you know, from this self-perception perspective, it's going to be less damaging to the brand for people to go through this effort of having to redeem something versus it, them getting it free at the point of purchase. It's evidence that I must really like this brand if I'm willing to go through this hassle in order to get the rebate for it. Yeah, and that's a challenge. I think it's up something like about 40%, if my memory serves me correctly. That sounds right. It's It was shocking when I heard it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Free money. So what does it mean that people should do, therefore, then, Ryan? So think very carefully. You know, the we talk about there being lots of theories that apply at any one time, and then there's, you know, conflicting theories that apply at any one time. We've had previous podcasts where we've talked about the importance of making things easy for your customers. Yeah. That is still 100% true. On average, making things easier, reducing barriers, all true. Around the margins, though... Are there instances where you can make things a little bit more difficult in a way that's not going to trip up a lot of customers, but that will build in this self-perception story? So, you know, people talk about the fact that Starbucks made ordering a coffee kind of a hassle, right? There are all these different choices and you had to learn several different farcical languages in order to be able to order a large versus a small. And it was kind of a mess. And that doesn't make sense from the perspective of making life easy, but it does make sense a little bit from this self-perception angle. Sure. If I'm willing to go through this hassle- Then I must really like it. Then I must really like it. Yeah. It's evidence from my own behavior. So in terms of what people can do with this, are you providing people opportunity to use their own behavior as evidence? You know, that some firms are- using these kind of Instagrammable opportunities to enhance the customer experience. Well, that'll help with self-perception too. If I'm willing to pause during my day at this amusement park and take a picture that I'm going to post then to all of my friends, you know, that's evidence that I must be having a great time. Sure. And so I wouldn't be doing that if I was miserable here. And so these are the types of kind of subtle things that you can do to emphasize self-perception and, and benefit from it. The interesting thing is that I don't think that most organizations need a hand in making their experience more difficult. Uh, I think they <laughs> I manage. Think you're right. I think you're right. <laughs> they manage to do that by themselves fairly regularly. But again, there are ways of making it difficult that are frustrating. Sure. And there are ways of making it difficult that are enhancing, yes. that provide people with uh, choice. Sure. If you go back to that Apple 
shop i'm using the you know um, we're launching a new product and i'm going to go and sit outside for 24 hours you know that's putting a lot of effort in i think from my perspective what does it mean it always goes back to understanding your customers and understanding the different segments of the customers that you have and understanding which ones are thinking of that self-perception and thinking, well, actually, if this is hard work, then I must really like it. And those that actually just go, this is just hard work and I don't like it. Uh, (laughs) And actually, I'm just annoying people by doing this. I mean, some of the difference there probably comes around the kind of the baseline evaluation of the product. Yeah, Nobody's waiting outside of the doors of a company they've never heard of or a product they've never had any experience with. Yeah. For a new new packet of crisps that has just been launched. Exactly. It's because people already believed in Apple or already had some experience with their products that they were willing to give the extra effort. Sure. And I think the other salient piece of advice that I would give goes back to what we said earlier, which is, you know, there's never one thing that's happening here. Yes. There's always a multitude of things that are happening. So good. Okay. All right. Well, thanks very much for everyone listening this week. If there's one thing that I would ask you that you could do for us, that would be to try to tell somebody about this podcast, the intuitive customer. It would really help if you could um, spread the word and get more people to listen. When we see the numbers go up each week, as we are seeing, that really gives Brian and I an incentive to carry on doing uh, these things and and talk about all these wonderful topics. So just tell somebody about it. That would be really good. And even better would be if you can like win an argument by sending somebody to our podcast. Now that would be interesting, wouldn't it? Yeah. So pick a fight with somebody and get them to take the position that you should always make things easier for your customer and then go, oh yeah. And then we're send them to this podcast episode. Good point. Well made. Then they can hate us as much as they hate you. But, you know, sometimes <laughs> sometimes hate is also useful, I think. Uh, yeah. I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> and on that note, we'll uh, talk to you next week. Thanks very much. Thanks, everybody. See ya. This has been the Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. But it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast. And we'll talk with you next time on The Intuitive Customer.